Welcome to the great conversation where ideas matter. Ideas shape markets, but more importantly, ideas change the world. Uh, as you know, uh, I have been all over the world uh, dealing with my own episodes of risk and opportunity. And it's a dangerous world out there. And, um, and therefore, a state of mindfulness and awareness is absolutely necessary to not only take advantage of the opportunities, but to acknowledge the risks that are out there in the world. And there's a whole discipline around that in the risk, resilience, and security industry uh, for high net worth and highly valued assets called executive protection. And uh, one of the thought leaders in that area is a gentleman by the name of Michael Trot. And today we have Michael on The Great Conversation. Michael, welcome. Ron, thank you very much. Appreciate, appreciate you having me. Michael, you'll read about him in um, my blog, but Michael is the Vice President of Global Safety and Security with something called Discovery Land. And, uh, and he may touch on that and some of the things he's doing on there. But um, let's, let's first back off a little bit, Michael, and go, go into your history a little bit. What's, what's your background of knowledge that's led you to this point? Ron, I appreciate that. Good question. Uh, it all starts somewhere, right? Um, you know, for me, obviously, uh, not obviously, but it does start with my military career, my military background. I think as a young, you know, 20 something going into the military, most of us don't know exactly what we want to be when we grow up. Even I struggle with it at 59. But I think that opportunity and that time in the military is what got my head spinning about the security industry. I was um, uh, part of the Air Force Security Forces. Um, and while I was in that particular section of the military or the Air Force, it just wasn't enough for me. I wanted to do more. So I was quickly looking for other things to get involved with, which led me to other special teams within the security forces. And then quickly being reassigned from the U.S. to Germany. Uh, this was post, um, sort of pre-Cold War, before the Berlin Wall came down, and, and then also post. Um, I was involved with some unique opportunities to get involved with protecting generals who were under threat from a particular terrorist group called the Red Army Faction at that time. And um, if you kind of remember a little bit about the history, around around the same time that the wall came down, there was a particular German banker by the name of Alfred Herrhausen who was assassinated. And that would have been my wake-up call, I think, to what I felt I was probably going to be doing for the rest of my life, and that's to protect people who might be targeted uh, for assassination or, or other you know, types of risk. So that's kind of where it all started. Um, and uh, from there, uh, about 10 years later, I had the opportunity to switch sides and run over to the uh, CIA. And I was uh, employed the CIA for many years and kind of continued my sort of a process of, of protecting others and became a, an assistant team leader eventually with the protective detail for George Tennant uh, at the CIA, both pre-9-11 and post-9-11. Um, so that's kind of where it all got started, Ron, if you will, and uh, that's 20 years of, of that particular type of uh, DNA that kind of grows inside of you, and then I've just kind of continued that for the next nearly 40 years after that, so that's where it all started. And you also, it's, con it's consummated 
um, in a book you've written called The Protected, right? That is correct. Yeah, that's, that's a good point. So that's, um, you know, I joke about it, but I think it's serious. Um, to write The Protected was, you know, 35 years of, somebody asked me how long it took me to write The Protected, and I said, well, it took about 35 years to write it. Because you do have to learn it, you have to experience it, you have to make the mistakes and learn from those lessons. So a lot of the content in that book did come from those 35 years. Um, and, you know, it's, it is a team approach. You know, it's all one team. So we, you know, I was able to talk to a lot of my friends and colleagues who've been in the industry and kind of take some of their advice. And, uh, you know, before the book went to publish, I shared it with a few industry people to, to give me their honest feedback and made some modifications and told a few stories that tell other people's adventures and their other lessons learned. So I feel it's a pretty comprehensive book for, uh, for our EP industry today. But to be honest, Ron, I wrote it. The, the, the nexus for the concept of the book was to write something for, for the principals themselves. Because often these individuals are left out of the conversation, ironically. Uh, but they're the ones who are protecting. But they don't know too much about the industry, especially in the last 10, 15 years with so much new money, so much emerging threat and risk. And these young families and young you know, 20-something CEOs and entrepreneurs and new billionaires, um, they migrate to some sort of form or program of protection, but they really don't know what it's all about. So uh, after working with and for a couple of those individuals, I thought, you know, we're, we're missing we're missing the content to describe to these individuals what protection is about from an EP perspective. So that was the other reason for writing the book. I, uh, I had a great conversation with Matt, uh, Max Segal, who uh, runs the Ana Group in Europe. I don't know if you know him. I do, I do know him. Mm -hmm. and, and we were talking about how interesting, this is serendipitous, but we were talking about how <coughs> clueless not because they're stupid, just because of time and focus and so forth, but how clueless uh, HR teams, event teams, and uh, the clients themselves are about what EP can and should be doing, right? And, mm -hmm. and we're talking conceptually. It's so interesting that you said the premise of the book is for those clients to actually understand what's going on, because just like just like uh, me being a medical patient, if I don't take ownership of my own health, then I'm just, uh, I'm just following instructions. I'm re relating to tactics and I'm not strategically looking at my health. The same thing with EP. Uh, it sounds like what the protected is, is really making them part of the journey of keeping them safe. And they should be first and centered, you know, foremost in that thought process. You're absolutely right. You know, there's not a CEO out there who who would venture to get into business in a product or a concept or an idea without knowing the total you know, workings of that process and understanding the risk to the failure of that uh, new company or, or that widget they're making. But yet when you turn to the protection of their life or their family, they tend not to want to get too involved with that, which has never made sense to me. So, uh, so no, to your point, there's a lot of examples in the book. There's a lot of, um, what I talk about is the human complexities of executive protection. Um, you can say executive protection is just concepts and principles and policies and procedures all day long. And while there's a little bit of truth to that, it is such a heavily human involved uh, 
art and skill. Um, you're you're going to be part of this principal's most inner circle, and you're going to see some things that you can't see, and you're going to hear some things that you can't hear, and you suddenly become part of the family and part of the entity. And even they're not aware that that's going to happen, but it's going to happen at some point in time. So it's an interesting topic. It's not just about the, the hard skills and the solid skills. There's, there's the human complexities of, of executive protection. And as I mentioned, to, to one degree or another, probably it's the second oldest profession uh, because as soon as somebody and a tribe tens of thousands or hundred thousands or millions of years ago, somebody was threatened by another tribe member. One or two people stood up and said, we're not gonna let that happen to you. So the very thought process of protecting someone has been around for a long time. Well, the practice has been around a long time. I remember Fred Burton and I talking about how he used to collect information on sticky notes and uh, and pieces of paper and, uh, and try to assess, um, assess the threats that are going on to his assets or his company or so forth. And uh, so we, we've been at it quite some time, basic assessment, basic awareness, basic situational awareness, uh, uh, tactics by which you would respond to a threat if needed. Uh, all those things have been in place for some time. Uh, and therefore, yes, I can see why you would call it the second oldest profession. Uh, but technology has a way of disrupting even the most love, you know, loved and cherished professions. Uh, as you and I, you and I are going to be participating in a protective intelligence summit in Austin um, later in February. What do you see? going on right now with protective intelligence that might be going through some form of transformation, even radical transformation uh, that you're seeing today with your perspective? I would say to your point, it is radical within our particular private sector um, protective intelligence. If I went back say 20 years ago or more, you know, the organizations like the Secret Service and maybe the CIA, we did have certain software and applications that we could use to help us analyze and kind of put in a, a machine learning component to the element of protective intelligence. But that was pretty much not available for the private sector, for private families, or even, you know, Fortune 100 companies. Um, so over the last, let's say, decade to five years, you've started to see some of that software sort of ooze out into the private sector, still being extremely expensive and very difficult to, uh, to really acquire for a small program that not only has a budget of a million or $2 million a year, and that particular software could be that much. So what we're seeing now, finally, and to your point, and you know, Fred and I go way back, uh, you know, for many years, it was just about that. It was about posting notes, or it was Excel uh, documents that might have our, uh, our POIs, our persons of interest, or our threats. In the, in the, in the, uh, anyone who's made a threat against our principles, we might find what we can, collect what we can through our relationships with law enforcement, maybe even the early years of getting online, and we collect this information, but it still goes into an envelope or folder that goes into the desk drawer, and we don't pull it out again until that name surfaces again. 
now we're seeing this transformation of having software and tools uh, like OnTick and others that are coming out with that is just honestly mind-blowing and taking us into a whole different new direction in terms of being able to understand the risk, to, to analyze and navigate that risk and, and to share this information in real time and to monitor it real time, which we've never ever had before. So it's, um, it is an exciting time uh, in our field with that kind of information. But I also will say, if I could, Ron, it, I would add, it also concerns me a little bit that possibly some of our practitioners are relying too much on that information to tell you what to do instead of going back to the old you know, gumshoe work that Fred would have done or I would have done years ago. You still have to put that human element into it. And sometimes our current generation or maybe some others are relying, in my opinion, too much on the technology. It's gotta be a partnership. And uh, hopefully that will adjust over the next few years. I, I totally agree. Um, I was fascinated because I was dealing with a robot manufacturer, for example, and I had seen many different iterations of robots come out. And at first it was a robot, um, you know, pretty much, uh, pretty much being operated um, uh, virtually, if you will. Mm -hmm. uh, but then some of the new models coming out have have the operator at the end of the line actually interacting with people through the robot. And uh, that augmentation uh, gave a deeper, richer touch point, if you will, to, to the interactions. And I think we're seeing that everywhere. I think we're, we're going to have to bring that human element into it. Um, but at the same time, at the same time, we're also dealing with an explosion of information over the last 10 years, uh, sources of information that would augment your insights, your situational awareness, your understanding of the threat. So the, I guess the secret sauce is going to be, how do we take advantage of what technology can do, which is give us a lot more information that uh, can be digested with ML and AI tools mm -hmm. quickly and still bring the human element into it to enrich it. Uh, do you see any techniques or words of wisdom on how that might be done? You know, I, I think to be honest, that may be one of the stumbling blocks in my opinion, because I think with, you know, the different software and technologies coming out, it is processing much faster than any human can. And it is sort of delivering information that has to be seen by the human's eyes to a certain degree. Because at the end of the day, if a threat comes to a protective detail, since we're talking kind of specifically the EP stuff, if it's delivered, it sort of surfaces, the flags go up, you still have to get in touch with either law enforcement, someone to now take it to the next level. Because every EP team doesn't you know, operate autonomously within the law. You still have to now apply the law to some of these issues. You know, can I go knock on a door? Can we go conduct surveillance? Can I ask, you know, law enforcement to conduct a 5150, kind of a psych eval on somebody I think is a concern. Um, if I think he's a concern in Alabama, but I'm sitting in Arizona, can I tap into legally the, the airline or rental car industries to understand, is this individual on his way from Alabama to me? So it's still emerging. I think there's you know, a lot more handshakes that need to happen in between different technologies. And then we're still gonna have to skirt the line of 
uh, the sensitive question of, of privacy and how much can you, you know, glean from this kind of information. Uh, if you look at active shooters at you know, the synagogues that we've had and churches and schools and buildings, every time one happens, almost every time when it happens, we're like, you know, we knew that was going to occur with that individual. So then it, it tells me there's a gap between the information we're receiving and working with law enforcement to stop it. Or if it's a personal protective detail, we have a concern. Now we have to, we have to you know, scale up a few more people for the residential protective detail or put out some more surveillance on our patrols or on our, our motorcades. Whatever that human component is, the technology is not going to do that for you. So we have to work a little bit more on the handshaking. How fascinating, though. I, I, think, I think you just learned something. Again, I've been around technology all my life, right? And technology usually has a laser focus. It's going to a particular problem at a particular time uh, and hoping for certain efficiencies. Mm -hmm. And in this area, though, in this area, it, 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 you need an integrated approach to collecting as well as digesting and assessing before you can take appropriate and efficient action. So to the degree an OnTech-like company can bring all that information together faster and yet distribute it in such a way to HR, legal, IT, mm -hmm. compliance, mm -hmm. it's gonna make you more effective and timely on your act actual response. Does that make sense? 100%. I'll give you another little example to a small degree. Um, there's a particular software that is very robust, very capable, and it works in the physical threat as well as a cyber threat. But it was designed mostly for the cyber threat world. And this uh, developer's a friend of mine uh, from, from Europe. And, uh, but he, he developed this basically hanging around at MIT and, and kind of working with some, some different programmers. And once the system got out there, it was extremely successful in the cyberspace. But in my speaking to him, he goes, Mike, this has an application for what you guys do. How can we tweak it? How can we use it? And we started looking into it. And it already had the tools that we could use in the EP space. So, you know, I was going to certain big companies that I knew that they were using this software. And I'm talking to the EP teams. I'm like, hey, uh, are you guys, do you have access to this particular software? And they're like, we don't, we don't have that within our company. <laughs> no, you do. Your cyber guys have it. And they're like, we didn't know that. So then you go to cyber guys and say, hey, do you share this software with your EP guys on a physical protection for the your facility and the executives? And they're like, well, no, we've never, we've never used it that way before. So I think to your point, you're, you're, there's certain, unless it is a product driven for I would say sort of the personal protection to stop active violence or active shooters or executive protection, which I'll give Ontic a hand. That's what they're focused on. It's got a lot more capability, but it was delivered into the physical security world. And now that that is beginning to, to come alive in this ecosystem. And we're quickly getting up to speed of how to use it versus a lot of the software, as you would know, was developed many, many years ago about the big threats to cyber. And that's where a lot of the emphasis and a lot of the money, uh, you know, the US government put a lot of money into that to develop that and it's setting behind those walls, but it never got over to the physical side. So I think we are, I think the doors are cracking open. We're beginning to share information. 
I, I'm sort of motivated to see now that, you know, companies like OnTech or others are beginning to open and crack those doors. And now we're sharing information from all the different sectors of HR, cyber, uh, you, you know, whatever that may be within that company's operation. So I think we are getting better at it for sure. And unfortunately, every negative event happens. I think there's a, you know, we step back and look at the lessons learned and we develop tools and pathways to, to make it better and to, to have more handshakes within that organization. One of the, uh, uh, when I was the CEO of a company and I would gather my team together, I had the VP of marketing, VP of sales, I had legal, I had accounting, I had IT at the table, I had operations, supply chain. And I had these people at the table that dawned on me one day that it was kind of like the United Nations. They all spoke different <laughs> languages. <laughs> And, uh, and, and I had to be the guy in the room to translate the interpreter uh, because otherwise we wouldn't see the big picture. Right. And what you just said, it kind of is a microcosm of that. If you think about it, when it comes to physical security, cybersecurity, executive protection, when it comes to these things, the more we can, um, have the machine, if you will, mm-hmm. learn, our, learn our practices and act as, um, act as almost a stimulus for human augmentation of that data too. So, so instead of relying on the physicist security guy to walk over and ask HR a question, but especially when you're right in the middle of a situation, wouldn't it be better if you got prompted and said, this, this is a, a possible privacy issue. This is a, a possible uh, EHS issue. This is a, mm-hmm. you know, that it could be really interesting if we start getting that kind of computer assist, if you will, in helping us talk to each other inside the company. A hundred percent. 100%. And I think to your point, I think it is happening slowly. You know, I think we, you know, we touched on robots earlier, when, I think before we started the podcast and, you know, robots are also another good way to, to see this handshake that I referred to. And I, I, I joked a little bit about it in my book about the future of executive protection, maybe another 20, 30, 40, 50 years down the road could be, could be sooner, but I do see the Android robot individual who looks just like a pretty much like a human sitting in the uh the executive's office or the suite who's sitting there to the side if you will and and sort of greeting with that and that's fine it could be that kind of robot voice but what you're doing is you're now starting to see this ai see so many different interactions a day that are is that is human that it will begin to learn and it will begin to send almost human-like notices to key people that Hey, this person, you know, with facial recognition, he's on the bolo list. He just walked in. Somebody needs to know about it. So I, I do think there's we're getting closer to the two working together hand in hand. Um, and I think maybe, you know, to the earlier point, when this a lot of the software came out in the cyber world, it was really the cyber people quickly seeing the red flags, doing their X's and O's and encoding and, and stopping threats. And they're doing it in their own little ecosystem. But now that we see this software have a broader approach to stop, you know, which is the whole purpose of it, to stop a, a horrible act from happening, it's got to happen faster. And as humans, then we have to respond quicker. 
And that's where I think we're getting, we're getting better, but we still have a ways to go. Yeah, that's, that's fair. Uh, for those of you listening today, um, Mike and I will be at the Protective Intelligence Summit uh, hosted by Ontic on February 21st through 23rd. And, uh, and uh, I'll want to be asking all sorts of questions about what's front of mind to Mike, because it's much, much beyond uh, what he's just doing at, uh, at his current position. Uh, and, uh, and I can't wait to learn more about what is stimulating you into the next 10 years of your life, Mike Trott. Ron, I appreciate it. Look forward as well. That, that'll be a great event and some really smart people there. And, um, I always enjoy sitting in the room with people that are much smarter than me. It's just uh, fascinating to hear. And Antic does have a great group of minds. So Austin's a great town as well. Look forward to uh, seeing you uh, next month. This has been a great conversation with Michael Trott.